or I guess tactical uh, reality. But the, I, I think to some degree, personal opinion is that ATACMs are very vulnerable or very good at attacking centers of gravity that you need to basically lull the enemy into forming. And this is almost like the perfect moment where we, throughout the course of war and throughout how well Ukraine has held certain lines, they've created an environment where the Russians almost out of tactical and operational scale realities have to form certain massive centers of gravity, even more so than the ammo depots we've seen hit with the high Mars. And at that moment, those are the pivotal moments where key weapons like ATACMs could be provided. Uh, whereas if you provided them earlier, the Russians may have actually learned uh, how to not have those things. Like they can't move a bridge, right? But they can move a lot of centers of gravity that are temporary. Now that we're in a situation where they have developed those centers of gravity or are developing them right now, and they have immobile ones, if we were to provide ATACMs, it could be doubly devastating. Exactly, also, exactly. And uh, you know, can really be able to strike those logistics hubs, uh, make it impossible for them to, to resupply as well. Um, not to mention the other targets. Uh, Stephen. Morning, everyone. Uh, hope you can hear me okay. I, I'm at the gym right now listening. That's in, but right. I want to uh, speak a little bit on the greater strategic look at why perhaps some of the assets have been delayed in addition to what uh, points have been brought up so far. Because I'm a bit of a NATO nerd, I'm tracking some of the new deployments and stuff going into Romania, Bulgaria, and the like. And part of the reason that I suspect you're also seeing a delay in some of those higher-end assets coming into theater in Ukraine is we want to allow friendly forces along the Baltics and the Balkans to beef up their presence. I'm sure most of you are tracking that there was a big NATO summit in Madrid earlier last month. And some key decisions were made there. So I think part of it is, yeah, of course, we want to be providing the Ukrainians with the assets they need. There are those concentrations of centers of gravity that have developed across the eastern part of the country, as well as in the south near Kherson. So right for the picking, which is fantastic. But looking outside of strictly Ukraine and more of those border regions to more or less contain future Russian ideation, you have a little bit of the strategic delay, at least on the part of the United States in moving more in before we're allowed to even move our unique assets into theater, like new uh, brigade size elements as opposed to just battle groups. So this is of course a little more speculation as opposed to the cold hard fact. I mean, I don't have anything to document or back this up, but just thinking of uh, having been over in Latvia last year, and knowing that this potential surge could be triggered under a like, pre-Article 5 type approach with the graduate response plans and the like at NATO, this does lend me to believe that, you know, we're, we're pacing it a little bit, not only to work the ground that's actually being presented in Ukraine, but also to have those friendly force elements then surge over to Europe. Because uh, as you know, things take time, not only politically, but just in terms of the actual logistics piece. It, it does take at least you know, at 72 hours realistically before you can start having the initial mobilization assets in place in theater before you can even surge some of the bigger stuff. Like you're not going to see an Abrams go from Fort Polk all the way to uh, Warsaw in 24 hours. It's just, it's, it's not something that we're capable of doing. So I, this is me reading into it a little bit, but I think part of the delay for sure is making sure we're able to bolster that Eastern flank as well as provide right assets at the right time. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Stephen. Um, I've got a kind of a, a, a tangential question on top of you know all the 
other activities that NATO's been doing. Um, uh, maybe maybe this for you, maybe maybe somebody else wants to talk about this, but uh, yesterday, uh, a, a Norwegian PT, uh, sorry, P3C Orion uh, and the Falcon jet intercepted an SU-33 and a MiG-29 up in the high north. Um, have you seen such activity before? It, it's very, isn't it very odd for uh, non-fighter jets to be the ones intercepting, uh, you know, Russian fast jets? Uh, up in the north, that's definitely a little less common. I mean, traditionally, the Baltics in the north have been treated kind of professionally by the Russians. So similar to what you would have seen in the Alaskan NORAD sector in the Cold War days, it would be, okay, Russian Tupolevs come in, you have an F-16 go to intercept their F-15s. There's a good degree of standoff. You take your pictures on both sides, go home, and you have a glory shot to hang up on your wall. These days, I think the Russians are starting to be more aggressive in mixing their assets in terms of doing those probes. As for, you know, frequency, how often, whatnot, else, unfortunately, I'm out of the loop on that. But it is curious to see the different assets being mixed up, both on the friendly side and on the quasi-adversary side because obviously we're not in direct confrontation at least at the NATO level with Russia but they seem to be probing us a lot more these days and it, it, it's more whatever they have as opposed to you know sending in an SU-35 or an SU-27 just my thought yeah that makes sense thanks Stephen um and you're right there's a there's a lot of Russian quote-unquote probing of uh but NATO airspace and, and uh as well as other areas, right? Uh, we had that Russian frigate off of Bornholm uh, maybe three weeks ago. Uh, other other Russian naval vessels as well. There's quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of that going on. Um, lots of overflights, of course. Right? They were trying to sneak some helicopters over the borders of the Baltics uh, a few weeks ago as well. Um, lots of harassing flights over uh, Finnish airspace, Swedish airspace as well. That's quite a quite busy in that respect. Axel. Si, senor. It is Saturday. Um, Saturday is the day for uh, energy, isn't it? <laughs> energy Sundays, mate. Energy Sunday. Saturday is the day to reproduce energy in storage. You could say it's Finnish ammunition. Is it Finnish ammunition day? I don't know if only we had a Finn around. I don't know, to be honest. <clears throat> Axel, I do have a question. And this is a little bit of my thinking about last night's discussion, and this is our Bundesluftwaffe veteran, Axel, that those F-15 and 16s, mm. as you know, in the Finnish doctrine, you know, the Air Force doctrine against Russia has been always that we cannot operate the planes from the air bases because they will be heavily bombarded, and, and therefore, you know, our, our planes, your F-18s and, you know, previous planes, they were always uh, relocated to the, and are still trained, you know, in during the crisis time to be relocated to the uh, road road bases, you know. We just make the bases, you know, out of the highways and, you know, we hide it in, them in the forest, etc. And uh, one of the crucial things, you know, when we selected the F-18 was that it had to be aircraft carrier capable twin engine planes because... Uh, first of all, you need a lot of trust, you know, take off from the road base because you don't need, you don't have so much, you know, clear runway. Plus, you know, when you land it, you know, we need to take it down with cables. So we have a stopping cable always in this road. 
And uh, now when we actually selected the F-35A, <clears throat> Norwegians already have tested it, you know, stopping it with cable, you know, when you come to the road. And, and I know for experience that, for example, I just, just want to emphasize that Suhoi 27 intakes, you know, it can protect it intakes, so it basically can take it off from very, you know, sandy ground and actually, you know, well, they usually, usually use a, you know, good, 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 you know, gravel, gravel runway, but the, the capability of them is that they can really, you know, give those, protect those air takes before they actually, actually start, you know, putting the full thrust on. So my question now circles back to the 15 and 16s. Of course, F-15, you know, has twin engine high thrust, but typically what you need to do is you need to do the hard landing in the very, let's say, a short runway because Ukrainians cannot operate these, you know, from air bases, obviously. And this has been a little bit, I was thinking that how suitable is actually F-16 and 15 for, you know, this war theater right now, because you need to operate from the road bases, you need to hide them into some sort of, uh, you know, out of the road uh, places, etc. So just kind of my thinking and please answer. Well, the F-16 can go what, um, roughly, 580 to 650 meters for, um, say, emergency landing and takeoff. And uh, what's that? Let me think. F-15, uh, 7,500. Yeah, the, the F-15 is definitely better. I mean, um, let me think. But can you, can you stop I think the, I the have, cable? I have, Sorry, I, I spoke. The cable. Please, please. Yeah, technically you can stop most planes with a cable if you want to, but you can't use them again anymore. <laughs> exactly. Now the F F eighteen is is definitely the better choice in that regard. Exactly, um, and F thirty five has the capability. We can stop it with the cable as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, the F thirty five was designed from the very get go to be actually um, aircraft carrier bound as well, if necessary. So. Um, that's that's not the point. But what you can do and what you don't need a cable for, and this is, I think, where the F-15 and the F-16 both come into play, is you can do hard landings and short landings and takeoffs on roads. And this has been tested many times over. I mean, if you want, I can find you a couple of videos from various places in the world uh, uh, where this has been done. And I think this is where the, the real capability of these planes being hidden on the one hand, as well as... It, in an emergency landing down and being refueled and uh, taken care of is exactly that's that's my whole whole point that you know yeah yeah but i, I think so you, the one, one thing is here is, is different you know regarding ukraine and finland because we have so much foreign and 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 ukraine you know it's, it's easier to land because you have much more fear and and you have better visibility you know for that runway strip but, but, but this, this, yeah but the road quality is shite i mean that that you have to say yeah, in, in, yeah, in certain yeah. areas and in rural ukraine the road quality is non-existent, and uh, that, that's just one of the things which one has to take into account. Absolutely. Not that the road quality in very remote places of Lapland is necessarily better. Exactly, but you know... I said remote. Yeah, exactly, but the idea is, you know, we build, build those, you know, secret secret runways there. So that's, a, that's how it goes. Yeah, the secret runways of northern Finland. Doman, yep. you really have to travel to northern Finland with all of us. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I will, I will, I will offer <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, <Cindy. laughs> Will that be finished? Why? So I've had so Swedish and Norwegian wine before. We, and, we, start, uh, we start with smell. Let's see, you know, how, how the wine goes after that. So. Or just sahti. That's horrible stuff. <laughs> no, just uh, that we um, 
by means of F-15s and F-16s and road landings and Finnish spirits managed to intoxicate our audience. Let's move on to the next topic. Mark. Mark. Sorry about that. I, I my mic off. Good morning, Axel Doman. I hate to interrupt the conversation about Finnish wine with a uh, more serious question for you, but uh, I don't see Russia or Ukraine and the Western world that backs it backing down from this conflict at all. You know, people talk about a negotiated peace, whatever it is. I, I just think Russia is all in on this, and and I don't think the West will 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 back down in, in its support of Ukraine. Uh, what are your thoughts on There will be always some wets within whatever country and within whatever government, but as a collective West, as a collective collection of you know, free countries, of course not. Of course not backing down, definitely not. Axel, any, any other thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is no need for negotiations at the end. This is just a, a unilateral ceasefire after Ukraine has pushed out all the Russian troops of its sovereign territory. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, that's the way I see it, Axel. I, um, which would mean that uh, Russia's fighting force, a military force, would absolutely be devastating, uh, which is kind of interesting to think of. I don't know if anybody six months could have ever envisioned uh, something that huge militarily w- w- would take place, but wow. Well, I think you heard it on this space very early on at some point in time. Uh, Dolman, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this was... Um, end of March, uh, and en route to the withdrawal then, that uh, at least two, if not three, generals said the very same thing, because the strategic defeat was already obvious, and everything else thereafter, these were just battlefield defeats. And uh, whilst one of them, one of the three big ones, uh, still stated that maybe Ukraine will have to work hard to get to the Uh, line of February 24th, first and foremost, uh, the other two already ventured out and said, well, no, this is more likely going to be a full-blown defeat of the Russian army in the field. I mean, not that the bringing them back to 24th would not also entail a full-blown defeat, but um, a real vanquishing defeat is, of course, freeing the whole territory. And uh, Axel, what did the Ukrainians need to be able to do that? They need attackers. They need many of them. They need a lot more gimlers. They will need uh, educated, qualified pilots with ordnance to put underneath their planes. They will need a lot of IFVs and uh, a serious amount of tanks in addition to what they already have. And we need to give them as much money as necessary to um, feed their troops, run the logistics, and make sure that the budget of the uh, of the state, which is under partial occupation and um, yeah, impaired by this invasion uh, does not fall into bits and pieces in the meantime. It's like when your neighbor's house is burning, you don't, you know, close the curtains and uh, look for the insurance policy, right? I mean, obviously, uh, there might be people doing that, but then again, they would probably vote for fringe policies anyway. Yeah, there's always there's always a handful, right? There's always a handful of fish columnists wherever you are. Hey, Ted, so would you prefer to go to northern Finland or northern Norway? Uh, well, it's easy for me to go to northern Norway because my father-in-law has a place there which we can go to. It's really nice. You're all invited. Uh, and good morning. Uh, just a follow-up on the uh, February 24th borders versus uh, chasing the Russians all the way out. Uh, I guess there would be a middle 
uh, uh, outcome, which would be uh, out of everything but Crimea. And uh, how do you guys consider that? Is that sort of is that uh, way easier to achieve than than freeing Crimea also? Or is it like if you first drove them out of Donbass, then Crimea is almost an afterthought? Apologies, Petter. This was not by design, but I didn't catch the question. I was distracted. Would you mind repeating the question, please? Yes. So, so actually, you mentioned that one of the generals um, thought that uh, the February 24th uh, lines might be then result, whereas the two others were adamant that uh, the Russians would be chased all the way out of all of Ukraine's uh, uh, sovereign territory, and uh, just to um, you know, uh, give context for the question, I, I see how uh, Russians uh, can be could be driven out of Donbass. There's no sort of reason to stop exactly at the line that was there before. If you can drive them out of the newly occupied territories, you can also drive them out of the previously occupied territories. But my sense is just that Crimea is uh, is a bigger challenge. So wouldn't it be uh, sort of a, a reasonable um, or a possible end result that they, uh, the Russians would be driven out of all of Ukraine except Crimea? And, and how difficult is it to drive them out of Crimea if you've already driven them out of all of Donbass, of Kherson and all the other uh, territories? It is a real challenge, but it's not impossible. And we had this discussion. And, and by the way, we have to be, be fair to our fair general because obviously they were not saying or they were not making these statements on the very same day because I think this was in sequence of about two and a half weeks uh, so the uh, the war had moved and uh, the tides of war had already changed a bit so it's probably it, it would be unfair to condense it to that that two of them were, were adamant and the other one was careful it's just that at that point in time um, the momentum shifted even further um, so that people felt more comfortable making differences. And I think they, all three are pretty much aligned in terms of their analysis. Uh, but having said this, I don't think that, uh, whilst we've, we've argued this case here many times over, yes, Ukraine could elect to negotiate out of a position of strength to take Crimea. That is a possibility. And I know that many people in especially in the political class, like to put this out there because they love these kind of seemingly, I'm sorry, this is unfair. They seem to have a preference for not waging war in force and not achieving results by force and uh, elevating the case of diplomacy where a swift, harsh, hard and decisive campaign can protect the world from evil for another hundred years. Why do I say that? Taking Crimea, the symbol of the Tatar genocide by the Russians, taking Crimea, the symbol of Russian naval and Black Sea expansion since Tsar's time, taking Crimea, which was stolen as part of the initial invasion, that is more than just a symbol. It transcends time. It vanquishes the imperialism. If you want to defang and change Russia, from my perspective, strategically, historically, politically, culturally, and that is most important. You have to showcase that they are vanquished because you cannot occupy the country. And if you can't occupy the country, meaning Russia, you cannot change it other than through prolonged North Korean style containment, which of course will be different because it will be Russian style, different country, different setup, different borders, 
different level of integration, different natural resources, blah, blah, blah. But if you want to really win this war and degrade Russia to the point that not just containment continues, but the cultural defeat is felt and that the reckoning, which, by the way, our friend Karl Prosser highlighted at a very early stage, if you want to achieve that reckoning, you have to take Crimea and you have to take it intelligently by force. Now, that can be an encirclement of Sevastopol whilst you take out the jetty. That can be um, forcing the military family members and the military families and the occupation, Russification families, by forcing them to leave, quite literally. But essentially, what happens typically in such wars, those who have come to occupy a territory are not really attached to it, and they will leave when the Ukrainian armed forces approach. Taking Crimea militarily is possible. Absolutely, it's no question. The Germans did it. Why would Ukraine, with better armor, better planning, better intelligence, and a good reason, and not being an occupation army, but a home defense army, why would Ukraine not do that? I don't see a single point in that. Well, President Zelensky, of course, smart as he is, indicated at a very early stage that he may have to negotiate for Crimea, and I think that was a good sign, in order to retain the full support of all the wonderful political strains of uh, Western democracy. If and when the Ukrainian armed forces have the means to do so, they will take it. And they will vanquish Russia. And therefore, rid us of that absolute terrible Mordor. Thank you. Great answer. And Peter, I, Peter, I owe you a phone call. Sorry, mate. We'll have to do this sometime later this afternoon. And actually, do you want to briefly comment on the practicalities, let's say, of uh, trying to retake Crimea. Obviously, you know, many people look at it and look at a map and say, oh, this this looks difficult to get into. Well, it is. It definitely is, but it's doable. The approach uh, through the gap uh, onto Crimea on the land bridge is doable. It has been done before. And by the way, the Russians did it in reverse. So uh, <laughs> this should not be discounted as being something which is impossible. The key thing is in combined arms and in having different range uh, capacity. You have to be able to mount a combined arms uh, attack with both very good mechanized infantry. You have to take out the logistics sides and the logistics and command posts on the other side. You have to do it across the whole island or peninsula. Uh, You have to take out the jetties in Sevastopol with um, precision guided ammunition. And then you have to advance on Simferopol, free Simferopol to start with take down all the airfields surrounding it and then uh, make your way onto Sevastopol, encircle it and um, have the city, respectively, uh, the Russian forces capitulate because they will not be able to do anything from the seaside when uh, the Russian Navy is taken out completely, which it will. So twice during the Second World War, but of course before that during the uh, post-revolutionary war as well, right? Second World War campaign was substantially more bloody and it was done by an invasion army and they had no regard for civilian population just as well at that point in time. And uh, whilst they were, had, uh, by the time they were uh, on the Crimean side, which also took them, took time, don't forget, but still, by the time they arrived there, they had pretty much air dominance, uh, but only then. They didn't achieve it en route to it. They didn't have air dominance uh, when they were crossing over um, to Novokohoka, but um, they were pretty good at it. And it's an invasion army. Um, <laughs> that's what it was. And uh, 
they definitely had more tank capacity at that point in time as well. But I think that the Ukrainians will be able to muster that. I don't see, uh, if you look at the defensive weapons the Russians are employing whenever they do, they are not, um, there, is no, there is no modern tanks they have. They can kill everyone, yes, with indirect fire. Sure, of course. But even that they can't do for long because there's counter-battery fire. The more the Russians are pushed back to the border, the quicker they will lose. There's a rolling forward momentum and you will be able to encircle them. They have absolutely nothing in terms of core disbrief. When on the defensive, they fall. Yeah, so and of course, uh, catalyzing that, right? Catalyzing that with... Uh... What is it? What is it that inspires goodwill in uh, in Russians that makes them want to retreat? Uh, right, yes, extensive extensive fires in their positions, long range fires, just like uh, just like there were on uh, on Snake Island, right? Which suddenly inspired lots of goodwill. Yeah, well, goodwill inspiration by having them finally see the light, quite literally. No, and it seems that we've worn out our welcome. Our audience has gone all silent. Or they are all, no, sorry. Of course, Miko is in uh, our time zone, so for him it's close to lunchtime. And everybody else is buying groceries, right? Clearly so, clearly so. Yeah, I'm thinking about <clears throat> F-15 Strike Eagle dropping a Zaydan, you know, on top of Makarovs. That's a good start. I'm with you, mate. Absolutely. Uh, if they can get the Strike Eagle, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. The other, I mean, platform, the F-15 platform, are very well received as well. And I think they will be useful. But uh, in terms of air to ground, of course, Strike Eagle is um, certainly what they should have. John, how are you? Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, you haven't put everybody to sleep, so uh, so don't worry about that. Um, just, to, just to really follow on from from what Axel was saying there, Crimea is the difference between turning Russia into, in defence terms, it's, a, it's effectively ending Russia's position as a European power and turning it into an Asian state, in effect, because the Black Sea will, or is already now, in a position where it's, it's, an, it's a NATO lake that is effectively closed uh, the baltic rather sorry um and crimea does the same with the black sea and russia literally has no outlet to project and to dominate into the maritime environment in in you know europe's near abroad i mean the, the, obviously they have the barents sea but you know that is and has been pretty well or can be locked up and locked down by Western navies, especially Western submarines, as and when they need to. So, I mean, Crimea really is that important. Russia's European future hinges on retaining that from a military perspective. And if it's taken from them, which I absolutely hope it will be, um, their position is in Europe is shattered. Absolutely correct. And that support or, say, highlights the point that the reckoning and the cultural defeat has to coincide with what is a military defeat. It cannot just be uh, to negotiate at the very end of standstill. No, no. This has to end with the last Russian soldier trying to crawl over, respectively, walk across that dang bridge. And if they only have Novorossiysk left, yeah, they have access to the Black Sea and they may be able at some point in time in, in the distant future trade again. But Novorossiysk is not a base for 
I mean, not in relevant terms. So I have a question for you, Axon, for you, John. John, where are you going, John? Uh, MP as well. Um, this is from, a, from one of my few Hungarian friends. Um, he's wondering, you know, we've seen the Ukrainians. Oh, I'll wait for John to come up because otherwise he won't be able to hear me while, uh, while he's connecting. Okay, there we go. So we've seen the Ukrainians apply a mobile defense tactic, right? Grinding down the Russians uh, and then retreating back to pre-built fortified defensive positions. So the question here is, with the Ukrainian counteroffensive coming and, you know, already slowly happening in Kherson, but coming at a greater at a greater scale at some point soon, would the Russians be capable of doing likewise? Or can we just really expect the entire front lines to crumble once a breakthrough is achieved by the Ukrainian forces, you know, like it was saying to the northwest of Kiev earlier in the war. I'll take that if you want. Um, I, I don't think that they can do that because it, I mean, this comes down to training. It comes down to the fundamentals of how an army operates. Um, and in order to conduct a mobile defense, you need to be confident in junior leadership down to the lowest levels. Because at the lowest levels, units be able need to be able to to make decisions um, about what positions to take, what positions to cede, where to move to, um, and they need to be doing that in real time. You know, you you can't wait for hours at the the end of a radio uh, waiting for a request to be approved by by a higher command. Russia is not structured in that way, and in that sense, that's how. The Ukrainian military has been revolutionized since 2014, um, or the Ukrainian army, I should say, sorry. Um, and, it, and it's now a different beast. And it's, you know, it's conducted what it's done in terms of that mobile, that elastic defense, effectively. It's conducted it in a way that I, I don't think any other Western military could have, could have done a better job with the resources at hand. I, I genuinely don't. Um, but I don't think the Russians have any opportunity. The, the, the Russians are brittle. They're brittle. I think of them now in uh, in Donbass and, and really all, all around the theatre, a bit like a bit like an Easter egg. There is a hard, hollow shell, but there's nothing behind it. There's there's no core, and there's no give. And I think once it breaks, it will shatter. And that's why I've I've asked a few times on here um, over the past couple of weeks about the Ukrainians' ability to then go on and manoeuvre in depth. Because I think once the Russian front line goes, it will it will go completely. And the opportunity will be there to, to push on and exploit to an extent that that front line can't be reformed. And they could lose huge amounts of ground um, in, in a relatively short period if Ukraine has the capability in terms of IFEs, in terms of MBTs, and in terms of logistics and air cover and mobile air defense to be able to follow that through. Um, but in terms of the Russians, no, they're, they're not going to be able to do what, um, what the Ukrainians have done. The key thing is going to be being able to suppress and destroy Russian artillery. Um, and if they can get that done, and I think they will, uh, then I don't think the Russians can stop them. I think it's a very good point that you made. Isn't it also fair to say that in this regard, and the delays in providing Ukraine with IRVs and uh, additional tank capacity are ever more insidious. I would say they are from a training perspective, but I, I mean, I, I obviously I have no visibility of this. I'm just watching this from the outside, like 
99% of, of other people on here. Um, but I don't think the Ukrainians will go in terms of the major counteroffensive as early as other people think that they will. They may, you know, they may be able to push for Kherson and try to retake Kherson in the short term. In terms of the major, major counteroffensive, I think that's still some way off um, because they, they simply don't have the tools yet. Um, is is That's my opinion. And, you know, that's formed in the light of the Ukrainians having fantastic operational security and really very, very few people outside of their chain of command knowing exactly what they have and where they have it. So it's guesswork. Um, but I still think, based on what we know, I still think they're a little way off, possibly months off, from being able to do the big, big push um, that that could shatter Russian lines. The logic is, I think, the key aspect which you touch upon and which you employ. And uh, the logic is that availability of IRB is everything. They can't transport the troops if they can't uh, advance quickly and uh, with power support, then they can't take the route. And whilst we may not know everything, one thing is clear, that the Ukrainians have been asking for IFVs and pushing for IFVs from all sorts of nations um, continuously because they know that they need them and that the death traps of old Soviet equipment they have are not suitable. No, agreed, Axel. I mean, protective mobility is, is absolutely crucial in, in an infantry fight. And this will be an infantry fight. I mean, we've, we've seen what happens on the Russian side to tanks that try to manoeuvre without support. You know, the essence of combined arms is being able to get the complementary effects of the different branches of the army working together. You know, you need armoured engineers able to, to overcome obstacles. You need infantry to effectively take positions and to, to you know, to neutralise ATGMs and you need tanks as as basically mobile pillboxes, that brute force um, that can come up against uh, another enemy force and just overwhelm it. You know, it's it's the sum of its parts. Um, but yeah, IFVs are, are absolutely crucial. And I, I don't even, I mean, the Marders would be fantastic. You know, Bradleys would be fantastic. That these are these are top end things. Uh, it would be it would be great for me if we could just give them five, six, seven, eight hundred M one one threes. You know, they're not fantastic, but if you give them to the Ukrainians with enough lead time, I mean, they will you know, they will strap and modify and do all sorts of things to those to make them you know sixty five percent, seventy percent platforms rather than 90-95% platforms. And they'll be good enough to do the job if they are working with MBTs of sufficient quality. Um, we, just, we just need, they need volume. You know, there is no substitute for mass, um, which is a lesson I dearly hope that the British Army is taking from observing this conflict. Yeah, <clears throat> so kind of my notifications is that Russia has now, you know, fallen back to its its original doctrine. So what it's doing, it's, you know, it's tying up the forces, you know, Ukrainian forces pretty much er everywhere else, but in the Donetsk, Luhansk, and, and that's that's where it's using its its main point of attack. You know, it, it started the war against its own doctrine and you know, trying everywhere. Probably, you know, misled about its, its Crimea campaign earlier, etc. You know, that it would be easy. <clears throat> now it's actually using the, as you see, you know, Severodonetsk area, you know, that, that's a massive push. 
and they have all artillery, you know, concentrated there and they're doing wave, waves of attack. So the, that, that's, that's actually where the Russians are now rolling. What I would actually do is to try to use this, you know, HIMARS M270s and, and, and systems, you know, and break up the Kherson front, Kherson front and try to make a breakthrough from there. And, and, and then, then what would happen in Donetsk and Luhansk area, that Russians would actually need to send reinforcements immediately. You know, in order to you know, you know, save that area and you know, protect Sevastopol in in order, and and once they you know start sending the supplies, they will come you know by road in columns, and that's your best case. You know, start hitting those columns, and and basically then you break the whole eastern front. You know, the attack power is once again gone, gone because they need to split their forces. So that's a little bit kind of my. Distract, deflect, challenge them on the... Uh, do you mind if I ask a question from a person that uh, is, or from a, a, a sense of uh, appreciating the knowledge that's in this room? Certainly, Mark. Uh, I have a two-part question. Uh, one is, I don't understand, uh, from my point of view in America, uh, and not a military person, uh, why there hasn't been a strike or something inside the Russian borders. It's just a question I would like to ask. And my second one is I have a, a, uh, a daughter that is going to the White House this week, and she is very politically uh, strong as far as her opinions and her uh, wanting to speak to politicians here in America uh, with her 30 seconds that she may be given. She has a strong opinion, of course, with our recent decision on abortion, but she has asked my opinion on what does it take for, uh, for Ukraine to come out of this as a country, as a sustainable um, a country once Russia gets through with this ravaging bullshit that it's doing. But what do I tell my kid? How can I give them some kind of knowledge of, of what can be brought out of Ukraine afterwards? And I'm going to be quiet and, and listen, please. Thank you. Well, strike on Russian territory have happened already. Uh, within the first 36 hours, um, Ukrainian armed forces hit um, the airfield uh, of Taganrog close to uh, rostov Nadonia, and prevented a large amount of the logistics capacity amassed there from being used uh, through airlifts into destinations such as the airfield at Khosomel, where the Russians tried to inter- infiltrate uh, close to Kiev, um, Ukrainian territory. So uh, these uh, strikes have occurred right from the beginning, and they will continue to occur on military targets specifically if and when Ukraine has precision-guided strike capacity, which to an extent it already has, but currently it focuses that strike capacity on those targets which are relevant in the second and hopefully soon enough third echelon, meaning supply points, railway yards, maintenance facilities, and command points of the occupying Russian armed forces. And that is significantly more important at this point in time. However, That does not mean, and it does not rule out, the same kind of supply points and military targets, legitimate military targets, in proximity to the Ukrainian-Russian border. And uh, I'm quite sure that you'll see a lot more of them 
in future. They happen pretty much every day in any of them. And the I, I, second... Oh, I, 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 no, I just... I, quickly on your point that you're making. Uh, I wonder why I'm not hearing about that in the in the news in America. I'm I'm, I'm just I'm, I mean that's that's my question. I I understand somewhat of what you said. You have educated me a little more and and some of the other strikes that I did not know of. But uh, I, I just wonder why the hell is is uh, why why am I not hearing about what you know about there? Uh, just a question. Well, <laughs> that is slightly more difficult to answer. I mean, that would require projection. And our American oh, colleagues... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm been, sorry. I'm, I'm just saying this is slightly more difficult to answer because I'm neither in charge of programming at ABC, CBS, or NBC. I can't judge. But I can tell you is that, of course, there's a lot of sources, including, for example, by the way, very decent reporting at the Wall Street Journal of all places, um, where these topics have been discussed and have been highlighted, that it may not be as uh, wide-ranging. Um, it's probably also due to the fact that America has a few other issues to deal with, and I'm quite certain that uh, Ukraine cannot feature every day at the top line of the media, despite the fact that I would wish that were the case, but it isn't, and unrealistic. It just seems like uh, I'm not being kept totally in the loop, uh, and I have to physically go out and, and source my news. And I hate that, but I mean, maybe that's just the way it is over here. Uh, but... I think it's just the way it is everywhere in the world. You really have to make an effort to get your, um, say, get as much detail as necessary for for you to feel comfortable. Yes, sir. And and my second part of my question about my daughters going to uh, in front of politicians, I would like anybody's uh, of what, you know, your opinion would be for uh, someone to to speak out for the for the well-being or what we need to do or what the help needs to be provided it happens definitely it happens as many bradleys as uh, the u.s can spare from pre-positioned stocks in europe and uh, give as many uh, abrams tanks as feasible uh, plus maintenance crews that's it uh, give them because the M1 Abrams, you have them and you have them both in Europe as well as stored in various nice locations in the US. Give them and that puts pressure on the Europeans to do the very same thing. Tell West, in, sorry, the Western forces in Europe, specifically the Germans and the French. By the way, gents, we do provide main battle tanks. Now get off your high horse and do the same. That's exactly how you do it. Oh, you sounded like what? I'm, I'm. This is a recorded space. I'm hoping because yes, it is. of course, of course. Okay. Well, I, I, that way I don't have to. I have Parkinson's, and it's hard for me to write notes. But what you just said was exactly the the lightning rod that she was needing, and it will help me uh, as far as explaining things to her. But what you're basically saying is ground forces. You need support. Uh, on the ground, uh, tanks is what I'm hearing. Is yeah, but that not correct? ground forces. You tank, M1 Abrams and Bradleys is what America can do in order to induce the Europeans to do the very same thing. The Germans have tanks available and the Germans can release tanks they produced, meaning their weapon system manufacturers produced for other countries, which are available, both 
uh, Leopard 1s as well as Leopard 2s, which have an, a simpler supply train and do fit what, uh, what the Ukrainians can actually uh, deal with equally well as the more, shall we say, maintenance-heavy and supply-side-heavy and jet-fueled M1 Abrams. But they are a very decent tank platform. And uh, I would always go for all of the above. So long-range uh, missile capacity, that's the Itakams. But then again, that is already under discussion. So if she were to ask that question, this would be to round it off. But uh, IFEs, infantry fighting vehicles, such as the Bradleys, in the hundreds is what the Ukrainians need in order to mount their offensive. And main battle tanks uh, supplied by the Americans would take away the European argument against provisioning of Western main battle Awesome. You have just made my job so much easier. Uh, I know this is a sad subject. And I don't mean to make light of anything, but uh, having my daughter have a, an intelligent question and understand how to counteract that question with an answer that is probably going to be bullshit and uh, generic. Uh, that is what she's a 16 year old with a agenda. So thank you very much for everyone that uh, uh, thank you. Uh, that's all I can say. You've made my life easier. Well, if we've done that, that's a start. Well, I just had a, a quick follow-up for, for Mark real quick. Um, if, if your daughter has uh, the privilege of speaking in front of anyone in the cabinet or, or even the president, because um, sometimes that happens even when it's not planned, he is very sensitive to the idea that uh, support for Ukraine, if it were to go too far, uh, might... Um, trigger parts of the population to, to, to like tidal wave against them. Um, I think part of that messaging on top of everything else that's been said needs to be, Hey, this is one of the few things that unites Americans and there is nothing you can do. You know, how, no matter how loud the far right or far left may be, there is nothing you can do that's actually going to turn America against the idea of supporting Ukraine and if we lose in Ukraine, then America has lost its soul of what it stands for. And uh, especially President Biden, he responds very strongly to that type of messaging about like the soul of America and the idea of uh, backing up, not backing down and things like that. So if that happens, I, I think that's a very strong message to say, don't be afraid because you have to understand from his perspective He's being advised by a bunch of cabinet members and advisors that are telling him, yeah. hey, the polling data says, yeah. you know, if they bomb Russia, like a bunch of people will hate it. Uh, and it's just it's skewed, you know. Well, I, I appreciate that. that she has actually won a, uh, a journalism uh, award for our state. Our, and they're, they're, they pick certain kids from all over all 50 states. And they take them through the uh, House, the Senate, and then they have a formal dinner at the White House. And the, uh, she has a chance to be in front of uh, the vice president uh, because of her security clearance is okay. Uh, so these are questions that, that, man, you just this knowledge. That's the reason I'm so glad I found this space. Uh, because I, I want to cut the bullshit out and I want to give her uh, intelligent questions to ask because she's very firm in this subject uh, of, of like all of young Americans and I'm sure young people across the world of uh, this uh, atrocity that 
well, anyway, you guys explain it very well. And, and thank you for the little bit of time you've given me and you've been very uh, helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, yeah, just to summarize, attack teams, infantry fighting, infantry fighting vehicles, way more tanks, um, way more air defenses. Oh, easy. I, th- I think it's... Uh, you don't even need to write that down, I don't think, Mark. You can, uh, I think you'll, you'll definitely remember all of those. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Tabasco Papi, welcome back. Hi, man. Just listening for now. I'll join in later. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, actually, you're Polish, right? I'm, I'm wondering if... Um, have you seen any, any more confirmations of the parties being sent? Uh, because all I've seen was that one video that everybody's seen. And, you know, obviously that that, that, that is nearly enough. What are you talking about right now? Oh, you know, the, the PT-91 Twardy uh, was supposed to be sent by Poland, a bunch of them in exchange for getting Abrams in. But there, there's been this rumor going around for ages, and then yesterday a video emerged of uh, a couple of dozen of purported Twardys on the back of a train. Um, and, and people said, oh, they're going to Ukraine now, they're going to Ukraine. And many people are now assuming that they're actually on their way, but it's, I don't know, it's really unclear from what I've seen thus far. Uh, I just I was wondering if you saw anything else in Poland. I was on a hiking trip the last few days, so I haven't checked everything. Uh, ah, uh, fair, what enough, fair enough. So, um, actually, I got a, got a bit of a funny story for you. Uh, do, do, do you want to have a laugh? Show me. So, Bolsonaro, you know, the, the Brazilian president, uh, figured out what Ukraine should do uh, to, uh, to, to, you know, solve this war. Um, and he said that Ukraine should uh, learn from the Falklands War on, on what it is to do. Now, I think he meant that Ukraine should do like Argentina, but I think that he's right in principle, right? Ukraine should learn from the Falklands War. Ukraine should learn from the Falklands War, and just like the UK did in the Falklands War, bring overwhelming force and kick the illegal occupiers off its territory. I think Mr. Bolsonaro finally, you know, like a, a blind chicken, finally found the right part. Yeah, well, almost, um, but just from the from the wrong side, it seems from the from the wrong side. But isn't it funny that a country of uh, size and economic uh, momentum as Brazil, for all its faults and all its difficulties, but still, that a country such as Brazil manages to produce a politician on the far right and a politician on the far left? both of whom are unified in one regard. They love Putin more than freedom and democracy. Yeah, it is really it is really shocking, isn't it? And very confusing uh, what Brazil is playing at, as well as what a few other countries around the world are playing at. Um, Tree Fox? Yeah, just wanted to ask about the Iranian drones. Uh, apparently they're like reverse-engineered uh, RQ-170s. Uh, which is kind of funny because I remember I remember when that drone was captured and I was like, huh, that'll probably end up being reverse engineered. Um, my question was, are they, is that something that's going to affect the battlefield conditions significantly or are they just reverse, reverse engineered crap, basically? So somebody came up a few days ago when the story first broke and kind of explained all the different types of drones that uh, Iran has. Um, I think they had, I think they listed like seven different types, anything from reconnaissance drones to some of these, you know, uh, reverse engineered, uh, I think it's reverse engineered Reaper, whatever it is, you know, you know, the type, the type, 